there could be lots of Republican donors who like effectively sit it out because they sort of think this primary is done. Um, and what's the point of spending, you know, 10 million bucks on, on DeSantis? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Wednesday, May 17th. Today, I'm joined by Teddy Schleifer to talk about where the big money is flowing these days in the 2024 presidential race. Republican donors are souring on DeSantis. They're grossed out by Trump. And then there's Joe Biden, whose campaign is telling fundraisers it's boring by design. Is anyone going to shake up this race or is a Trump-Biden rematch basically inevitable? We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, keeping the seat warm for Peter Hamby, who is still on his honeymoon for the next few weeks. Shout out to the happy couple. And joining me on the mic, we've got Teddy Schleifer. How are you, Teddy? I'm good, Ben. Thanks for having me. I saw you uh, shooting spitballs on Twitter at Zach Malamud, who our colleague Tara interviewed this week for falling behind you in the uh, race to visit every national park. Mm. How do you guys know each other? Uh, Zach is a very well-networked kind of donor advisor, especially with people who are under the age of 30. And Zach is uh, running for Congress, the first person my age who I've known to do that. So I enjoy the interview he did with Tara. Speaking of campaigns, it's funny, I feel like there is a predominant emerging theme in this 2024 race so far that nobody is particularly happy or excited with any of their candidates. You've got Trump, who's old and unpopular, Biden, who's older and only slightly less unpopular. You've got DeSantis, who was you know supposed to be the Trump alternative, and then it turns out that people don't particularly like him either. He's polling pretty terribly. I assume it makes it sort of a weird race for you to cover, right? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, donors complaining about their candidate of choice is uh, a tale as old as time, even if, you know, like people complained about Obama in 2012 or Romney in 12 or Hillary in 16. These are just a group of, of creatures predisposed to uh, having having gripes and feeling that they know more about politics than these 27-year-old kids. But yes, look, I mean, this is uh, uh, on the Republican side. I think you have lots of donors who are settling from the outset, um, folks who feel that 
DeSantis is is not who they would vote for in a typical Republican primary, but they might bundle for him or donate seven figures to him because they see him as the only chance of beating Trump. And that's why they are, they are settling and like they can live with him some days, right? I, I think, Ben, what you're picking up on is this, this sense that settling is, is painful, right? Uh, you feel like you can live with him some days, but other days you really, you know, wish you were supporting Mitt Romney in 2012 or Bush in a 2000. And like, those are your real politics. And then on the Democratic side, uh, I think lots of donors feel like they're settling with Biden, which was, you know, they were excited about Biden in 2020 because he could beat Trump. But they were really excited about Hillary in 16 or Obama in 2008. So you get the sense for lots of major contributors that if you could roll back the clock, you know, 10 years in our politics to the Obama-Romney election of 2012, that would be, that would like capture their true points of view more accurately. But obviously, you know, the, they don't decide who the nominees are and the, the parties have decided. So clearly, even if lots of Republican donors, I think, would prefer someone like Asa Hutchinson or, or Nikki Haley or whomever, you know, these kind of more, quote unquote, normal Republicans, DeSantis is the best of their options right now, which is why I think there's this feeling of, of malaise and, and settling from, from the outset. Well, let's talk about those big major donors specifically, because th- these are people we can't pull. Exactly. We have polls showing the electorate at large. We've got would-be or registered Republican voters. You're actually out there talking to these donors, and they have very different needs and interests than ordinary voters. I mean, obviously, they um, they fall in love with candidates like anyone might, but you know, they also are interested in tax and regulatory policies that don't affect most other people. Sure. Maybe they're interested in a diplomatic posting in Slovenia like Conor Roy on succession. And like you said, this pendulum has been swinging back and forth. People were interested in DeSantis, and then they started to saw him up close and had their doubts. They swung a little bit more towards Trump, perhaps, and then, you know, are second guessing that. Where are you sort of seeing that momentum right now? I mean, I, I know this narrative is a moving target, but what are you hearing out there? Sure. Caveat as expected that it's it's early. I, I feel like, you know, we are we're we're jumping into this, you know, with with all the enthusiasm we have at Puck. But I think for lots of donors, they they feel they want to wait, and we can talk about that dynamic in, in a second. But um, or, or sorry, wait publicly, but privately, right? I mean, obviously they're following the campaign, obviously, and Republican donors have had second thoughts about DeSantis. I think it's fair to say, you know, for lots of them, they saw him as the only non-Trump option, and frankly, that like that still might be the case, but they're just less positive about or less excited to make him their, you know, non-Trump option because, you know, sure, they can put $20 million behind Nikki Haley or whomever, but they can read polls. You know, they see that Trump, you know, is up 30, 40 points in national polls. And then DeSantis is up, you know, 15 points on kind of the tier three. And then it's everybody else, right? And I think lots of people in tier three are going to struggle to raise money because of that dynamic. So like to put yourself in one of their shoes, Ben, I mean, you are don't want Trump to be the nominee and you're, you're sitting there saying like, what are my options at this point? It's, it's a shit sandwich that I don't want or like shittier <laughs> sandwiches that uh, right. are, have no chance of winning. So it's like, you're in a tough mind. I mean, like, you know, I think there could be lots of Republican donors who like effectively sit it out because they sort of think this primary is done. Um, and what's the point of spending, you know, 10 million bucks on, on DeSantis. So it's not to be too nihilistic about it, but um, I don't know whether there's that much donors can do. And in fact, like, like, look, DeSantis and Trump are going to have no problem raising money. You know, we can we can talk about individual donors, but there's a lot of 
a lot of wealthy billionaires out there who, you know, you know, I think both those, both of their super PACs will raise, you know, a hundred, 200 million bucks each. So it's not going to be, it's not really a question of like for the candidates about whether or not there's enough people to actually finance their campaigns. But I think it's, it's a question of like whether or not donors want to be a part of, part of this again, right? Obviously there's a 2016 deja vu that hangs over it for, for the media and also for Republican contributors where, do you really want to kind of go through the the drama again of trying to get this guy out? So it's very it's very it's very nihilistic, but it's a, it's a, it's a dark it's a dark mood right now. I think in in fundraising circles because if you don't want Trump, which I would say eighty to ninety percent of the Republican donor world you know feels that way, it's kind of DeSantis or bust. So take your choice. Yeah, well, t- Teddy, you nailed the electability catch twenty two here. Polls show that, that Trump has a worse chance of beating Biden, that DeSantis has a, a better chance in a general election. He's younger. He's potentially more palatable to moderates, even if his actual politics may in some ways be a little bit more right wing than Trump's. He doesn't have the same obvious characteristic flaws and legal baggage that Trump has. But yeah, exactly. To, to your point, none of that matters if you can't get Trump out of the primary. He becomes the nominee and then he loses in a general election, which, again, is sort of incredible considering that Biden is pushing 81 years old and he's not particularly popular either. But you've been talking to some actual Republican donors this this past week. You had some reporting yesterday about Bernie Marcus, the big uh, yeah. GOP donor who founded Home Depot. What's his reticence? Because I know you you reported that he's sort of uh, uncommitted at this point to backing Trump. Yeah, and the reason why I focused in on on Bernie Marcus specifically is that there were basically no Republican donors who were kind of closer to the Trump operation than than Bernie. Maybe you know you put Adelson up there or someone like Steve Schwartzman, though I think even that you could debate. I mean, Bernie Marcus, um, for people who are not familiar with the CV, you know, founded Home Depot like 50 years ago, and he is, you know, worth six or seven billion dollars at this point. And he became like a huge Republican player in the post-Citizens United era. Um, you know, he started his own kind of 501c4 dark money group. He became a very big donor to kind of the Senate Leadership Fund and kind of uh, Republican uh, Senate efforts, along with the Republican Jewish Coalition, which was an Adelson-led, you know, group focused on the causes like moving the embassy to Jerusalem. And Marcus was very, very close with kind of, in some ways, like the more extreme elements of the Trump administration. Like Bernie cultivated a relationship with Bannon very early on, and the Mercers and and Marcus became quite close. So I've been very curious. Like you know, this is a guy who should, in my opinion, be a Trump person. Do, do you have a sense of like what it is that sort of turned him off? I mean, you mentioned he, he was close with Bannon. He's close with the Mercer. So he's not necessarily upset about the the far right rhetoric. Is, was January 6th a tipping point for him like some other donors? Was it Trump's recent legal troubles? I think it's been what you referenced a couple of minutes ago about the polls. I think for, for Bernie Marcus, a lot of this is about practicality and about who you think actually is going to win a general election. And he is like a pretty partisan Republican. And he does not want Joe Biden to win. And I think he is concerned that Trump is not going to win. This is what some sources tell me, that that Bernie cares almost exclusively about winning. And, you know, if you put up, uh, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy or whomever, and that person can win, like, great. It's get rid of Biden, you know, who Bernie has called the, the worst president of all time. So that's why I kind of think he's almost like a bellwether for lots of kind of the Trump donor universe, because... Look, lots of Republicans that got in bed with Trump during his presidency were doing it because it was it was convenient, right? There was no like serious 2020 Republican primary against Trump. 
you know, he won in 2016. What are you going to do? Is sort of the kind of the attitude I remember hearing at the time, you know, when I was when I was first kind of covering Bernie during 2016 or kind of Republican donors of that era. And, and the, the expectation now is in 2024 that the people that are going to be excited about Trump in the major donor universe, it's going to be some subset of the people that backed him during 2016, 2020. Like, I don't think there's any reasonable argument that like there's going to be new Trump donors. I mean, like you kind of know what what there is. And, that, and that's why I feel like Bernie is a bellwether because he was excited about the Trump presidency. You know, I think he had some problems like lots of business leaders did privately with like the, you know, quote unquote antics. But he was excited about the tax cuts. He was excited about the move to Jerusalem of the embassy. But he lost. And whether Trump wants to admit that or not, like donors know that and they can read polls. And I think for, for Bernie Marcus, it's it's about about that, um, about who can win. Now, I, he has a lot of the same concerns about Ron DeSantis that, you know, we've heard other donors express. You know, I, I report in the story this week that, you know, Bernie is concerned about the DeSantis position on abortion. He, he lives in Florida now and, you know, has not loved the, the back and forth with Bob Iger and, and Disney. So that's and then other ways makes him a bellwether, which is why I think he's an interesting character to kind of get a get a window into into other uh, kind of Republican donors. I mean, Marcus says in a statement in, in our piece that he's expecting to make a decision, quote unquote, much later in the process. And I feel like if any Trump aides read that statement, like it's kind of like I feel like you kind of got to like hide in a corner when you hear that, because if Bernie Marcus is not excited about the Trump campaign out the gate, it makes you wonder, like, who else is there? Well, at the same time, it's like it doesn't matter if these guys don't step up and support another candidate. They can sit on the sidelines. All they're doing is they're allowing Trump to move forward in this process, consolidate his support in the polls, get into a position where he's racked up enough endorsements and create enough momentum with his ground game that he becomes unstoppable, which is, you know, just a replay of what happened in 2016. So, yeah, you know, Teddy, to your point, it'll be interesting to see whether Bernie or anyone else actually sort of breaks out of the pack here and, and, and makes a big bet on DeSantis or someone else. Obviously, DeSantis has not actually formally launched his presidential campaign. Yeah. Things could change quickly. Right. And the uh, DeSantis timing here, I think, is, is is really coming into focus because basically the DeSantis campaign has reportedly, I've not been you know independently reporting on the DeSantis uh, office, office plans, but the DeSantis campaign recently is started renting an office. So they're now paying for office space, which then kind of triggers campaign finance related announcements that have to flow out of the fact you're now spending money for a presidential campaign. The other thing going on right now is on on the timing front, Ben, is for the last three months, the DeSantis super PAC has been playing this like pretty unusual role. This is the group called Never Back Down, which is kind of led by Jeff Rowe and his kind of crew at, at Axiom Strategies. The super PAC has been able to coordinate with the candidate because there is no candidate officially, right? There's no federal no one's running for office. You know, DeSantis was not a declared candidate. But once he starts running, the super PAC obviously can't coordinate as much as they can right now. So the timing is really coming into focus because of some campaign finance related things. And um, I think we're going to start seeing the DeSantis state campaign account start to transfer what looks like it's going to be 80 or 90 million bucks to the super PAC. So there's a lot of campaign finance related moving bits and pieces that are going to unfold over the next, it it sounds like next couple of weeks by the end of the month. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, Teddy, let's talk about what's going on in Biden world. (music) 
Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code POWERS. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. So, Teddy, lots of hesitancy and self-doubt in the Republican donor side of the world. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on with Biden. His campaign has had a <laughs> very soft launch, um, mm. sort of a barely imperceptible launch. But it's on. It's going. They're raising money. How is it going so far? Yeah, Biden was in New York last week for, uh, you know, his first fundraising trip. You know, tickets were up to 100K. Pete Buttigieg was, was a special guest at the event. So it, it's going. I mean, there's lots of like boring blocking and tackling that happens at this stage in a presidential campaign from a fundraising perspective. Um, you have to kind of get your finance committee set up, which requires, you know, lots of uh, ranking of egos to see who becomes the finance chair and the finance director and the different levels. But the wheels are a turn in here. I mean, they're the super PAC that Joe Biden's aides have sort of designated as the blessed group is out there, you know, running ads. They're out there talking to donors. You know, I think this year will be pretty quiet, frankly. Like the machine will begin humming, but a lot of it's going to be this kind of quiet stuff. It's going to be Biden popping into a fundraiser occasionally. It's like Obama 2011, right? When um, the reelection headquarters was being set up, there were some aides there. But it wasn't until kind of the, the end of the primary that you begin to kind of visibly see the reelection operation. So the energy is not going to be there. The energy is going to be on the Republican side. Yeah, of course. And the dynamics are very different. 
when you're an incumbent. I mean, that that really changes things. Biden's already in the White House. He's running for re-election. He's not running to be president for the first time. And I know that people inside the Biden campaign have basically said that it's boring by design. You know, they know people aren't super excited about this. That's how they want it to be. They think they can just go out and get it done, win on the merits with the the base and the voters that they have. But, you know, you and I have talked before about this sort of perceptible lack of existential threat surrounding this election, which doesn't necessarily make sense, given that Trump will most likely be on the ballot. But there is this worry inside the DNC that they need that fear element to drive donations, to drive turnout. Is it just still too early to be worrying about that? Or is that a real concern that you are hearing from the donors you talk to? No, that, that's definitely a real concern. I mean, especially kind of given my my source base among tech folks. There's like 100 donors who really matter uh, or have mattered since 2016, right? The last time they, you know, we kind of entered this 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 Trump era. And like, you know, even if like 20 of those people go away, which, you know, because they're like, yeah, who cares about DeSantis, right? You know, I think that would be a real concern. Um, you know, it's it's such a, you know, these 100 people play such, such a disproportionate uh, role in, in the kind of Democratic fundraising establishment that if you're Dustin Moskowitz, right, who was uh, one of the founders of Facebook, who was never a Democratic donor before Trump ran, you know, in 2016, the fall of 2016, he and his wife wrote this blog post saying, you know, compelled to act was what I believe the title of it. They felt that they didn't really want to get involved in politics ever, but they felt compelled to act because of Trump. Like, if DeSantis is the nominee, like, maybe they're not compelled to act. Maybe they just go back to, you know, focusing on their charitable enterprises and corporate stuff and like, you know, and then you go from these 100 people who matter to 99 people who matter, like, okay, no big deal. But Dustin Moskowitz spent, you know, 100 or 150 million bucks last cycle on on the Democratic campaign. So just one or two decisions by one or two people can have massive ramifications for this world that I cover. So I think yes is the answer to your question. There will be people that drop off and there will be consequences. Yeah. And of course, we should say, as we're talking about Republicans and Democrats, you and I have not really been addressing the small donor aspect of this. A huge amount of this money is going to come from ordinary people, school teachers in Virginia and union members in Nevada. You had reported before that the Biden campaign expects they're going to need about $2 billion to be competitive and to see this campaign through. I don't know if that total is including dark money and super PAC money if you're just talking about the campaign. Yeah, that's 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 all Democratic political spending on the presidential race. What percentage of that do they expect that they need or want to get from big donors versus small donor donations filling out the rest? That's a good question. I mean, if you include, you know, because that includes non, you know, there are, there are no mom and pops donating to super PACs. I mean, look, I mean, a, lo- a lot of the, I don't know, I don't have a good number on this. I mean, it's going to be a lot from, you know, the outside, outside donors. I mean, as I mentioned, Dustin Moskowitz spending a, a hundred million bucks, right? That's, that's five percent of the two billion dollar total, right? You, you pile up a couple of Dustin Moskovitz into 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 a car, you know. That's that's a lot more money than a hundred thousand people donating donating, you know, ten bucks. You know, I think the reality of modern politics is that the both candidates are extraordinarily reliant on big donors, and yes, the small donor revolution online is a way to have kind of a, a constant cash flow but ultimately uh you know these these big these big players still are, are huge drivers of uh of the total money in so it's gonna be i don't know i don't have a number for for how much what percent of it's going to be small versus big but clearly the the hundred people that i mentioned that are at the top of the democratic party could they do a billion of the two sure 
Yeah, and again, we're still about 18 months away from the election, so a lot's going to change because it always does. Teddy, thanks as always for dropping by. Appreciate having you. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Dylan Byers. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck, and Bob Tabador.